Well, let me ask you this morning, what comes to your mind when you hear the word compromise? Compromise. For you glass half full people, maybe you're thinking about wise compromises, like concessions that you make with your spouse. That's a good idea, fellas. Or wise compromises that you make or concessions that you make at work to to just get the deal done in a way that everybody can be happy. But if you're glass half empty, you might think first off in your mind about compromise in a different way. And it's a right understanding of compromise. Compromise meaning breaking of a moral standard usually to get something that you desire. The breaking of a moral standard. Perhaps you think, maybe you don't think of yourself first, I probably don't. You think of the shady politician, right? Who campaigns on a certain number of policies and they get in and they get paid and they change their whole platform. That's compromise. Maybe you think about the moral failure in your marriage that has caused compromise in your marriage and a lack of trust with your spouse. Maybe as a believer in Jesus, when you think about compromise, rightfully so, you think, man, the moral compromise of God's standard, how God desires and wants me to live, and if we're all honest about that, the truth is we're all compromisers, aren't we? There's all... There's been points in time in which your integrity is compromised, whether anybody knows about it or not. And yet as believers in Christ, even in those compromises, small or big, we can, don't have to hang our heads. We can come to a God who's willing, by his grace, to forgive us as we repent to him. That's what sanctification really is. It's a long walk in the same direction. And we talk about that as walking, and the Bible talks about that as walking, but sometimes it's running Sometimes it's walking, sometimes it's crawling in that direction. Sometimes you don't feel like there's any movement at all because you're looking the other direction. Sometimes you're flat on your face, but you know that God has you by his grace. And even as we think of compromise, maybe, and rightfully so, we think about our own compromises. We should start there. But maybe we even look outside of that in the church and go, man, That church 20 years ago was in a very different place than it is now. That church, for a million different reasons, has compromised. It's compromised its theology. It's compromised its morality. It's gone down the road of culture. It's moved down and it's compromised what God has called it to. It's forgotten to take Jesus at its word. You know any churches like that? That happens in the church. And man, we live in a world where there's always pressure on believers. There's always pressure to conform. And this is what happens oftentimes to churches. What would Jesus say to us about that? Well, he has something to say about the third church in the book of Revelation that we're going to be looking at today. Turn with me to Revelation chapter 2, and we'll be in verses 12 through 17. This is the church at Pergamum, third church of the seven churches in Revelation 2 and 3, where Jesus has a message to these churches. This is, we've said, this is Jesus' report card or kind of performance review of the different churches. And there's a pattern, right? 
He identifies the church and its name. He describes himself, a description of himself and who he is. And then if there's any encouragement for the church, he usually gives that first. That's usually a good pattern, y'all. Encourage and then correct. He encourages the churches if there's any encouragement. And then he says, this I have against you. And after that, he corrects them and he calls them usually to repent if there's something wrong. But then there's this balm of grace and hope that he holds out for all of these churches. No different today. We come to the church in Pergamum. We've seen the church at Ephesus who were doing well. They were working hard. They were holding the line morally and theologically, but they had lost their first love. They had lost their motivation to toil and to labor. They lost their motivation and right motivation to please God as they held on to a body of truth. And Jesus said, Man, I'm going to tape your lampstand even though you're orthodox because you've lost your first love. You've lost the motivation, the reason you're doing what you're doing. And last week, we came to the church at Smyrna, and there was no correction for the church at Smyrna. They're a persecuted church. They were going through a very difficult tribulation, one that we look at and we go, we don't live in that. Jesus had encouragement for them, though. He said, listen, you need to trust me. Rather than living in fear, Live in faith, faith in the risen Christ. And we come to this church in Pergamum this morning, and you're going to see the church at Pergamum from the outside looking in. And what's going on in the culture? They're doing pretty well. They're wearing the Christian crosses, and they're repping Jesus pretty well. But there's a massive problem on the inside of the church. There's a disease on the inside of the church that threatens to shut them down. What will Jesus say? What will he say to the morally and theologically compromising church? I can't think of a more important six verses for the church in the West, the church in America today, than these six verses in the church of Pergamum. It's a warning. It's a warning about compromise. Not the wise concession kind of compromise, but the sinful compromise that the world puts right in front of us. Revelation chapter 2, I'm going to read verses 12 and 13, and we'll just work today our way through this text. Into your Bible, book of Revelation, a couple of pages in, God's word says this. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, the words of him who has a sharp, double-edged sword. It's Jesus, his words. Verse 13. Here's the problem. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Serious. Yet, look at the encouragement. You hold fast to my name. You hold fast to my name, and you did not deny my faith even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, or literally martyr who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. Serious stuff going on in Pergamum. Double-edged sword, you've seen that before. Maybe if you know your Bible in the Old Testament, it describes Messiah to come in the New Testament. Hebrews chapter 4, the word of God is living and sharper than a double-edged sword. It cuts through bone and marrow. It discerns the thoughts and intentions of our heart. 
We know Jesus as the Word of God. In, he, in, in Hebrews 4, it says the Word of God is living and active, sharper than a double-edged sword. There's two sides of the sword. One is judgment. Isn't that what a sword does? It brings judgment. But Jesus, the Word of God, the Word of God itself, the other side of the Word of God is honey to our lips, isn't it? It's a light into our past if we heed it, but it also will bring judgment. Later in this text, Jesus is going to say, the sword of my mouth. Picture that. You got any artists in here? You want to paint that? Double-edged sword. This is how he presents himself to this church. And then it says, the city of Pergamum. And just so you understand, he's not saying that the people in the church in Pergamum or Satan's throne. He's saying the city of Pergamum is where Satan's throne is, and he dwells there. It's the city of Satan's throne. Why does he say that? A couple reasons, I think. When you, when you, if you just go and look in this area where, where this city was and where this city is, it's like an Acropolis. It's at the top of a hill, and so it's, it looks like a throne from far off. And what's going on in the church, or excuse me, in the city, like we've said in the other places in Asia Minor who are ruled by the Romans, there's a number of things going on. The first thing you need to know is that it's um, a place where there are statues of the Greek gods, Zeus for one, and the statue of Zeus that is there that people go to and worship has a serpent's tail, Satan's throne. Not only that, the god of healing the Greek god of healing, Asclepotus, has the symbol of the snake. You ever see an EMT drive around? This guy's an EMT. What's the symbol for the medical community? And I'm not a conspiracy theorist. I don't think there, there's any problems here. What's the symbol? Where does it come from? It comes from this Greek god, the god of healing and the god of medicine. And this symbol, well, the interesting thing, the interesting practice of these people when they were sick and they needed to be healed, they believed that they would go to this temple of the God of healing and they would lay down, you see this in silly movies, right? They would lay down and snakes would come over them, non-venomous snakes. And if the snake bit them, then they would be healed. I'm not saying there's snakes in the EMS, man, all right? Don't go there. Conspiracy was, that's not my point. There's a serpent. The symbol of this God is a snake like Satan. And not to forget one of the biggest problems in all of these cities is what we've said for the first two weeks. One of the biggest problems for Christians was the emperor worship, the Caesar worship that was going on where, remember I said you had to burn incense it was, it was like to prove your loyalty to the state. You had to burn incense to Caesar and worship Caesar, and Christians couldn't do that. And many Christians, as we've already said, have been martyred for their faith because they won't get in line with Rome, because they won't worship the Caesar. And this is the primary problem. So for all of those reasons, you have a serious, serious statement from Jesus that says Pergamum is Satan's throne Pergamum is a place in which Satan dwells. But notice something. Who else dwells there? The Christian church. They're not moving out. They're there. It's the permanent residence in a city 
that is given over to sexual immorality, in a city that is given over to false worship and idolatry. The church is there. And look at his praise. You have not denied me. In the public square, this church held fast, and they even held fast in the midst of one of their own getting killed for their faith because they wouldn't worship the Caesar. Even then, this church held fast to the name of Jesus, meaning they didn't go worship the name Zeus. They didn't go worship the Caesar. They held fast to the name, the person, and work of Jesus in the midst of all of that. See, Jesus' first truth this morning is that Jesus commends the church or churches who withstand external persecution. He commends them. He sees them. He knows them. He's for them. He's with them. He encourages and praises them and applauds this. Can I say this? That's pretty far from us, like I said last week, but so should we. How do we do that? We do things like pray for the persecuted church in the world that we live in. I want to show you, this is just one website. If you go, well, that's so far removed from me, I'm going to bring it front and center. If you want to take a picture of this, opendoors.com. You can go to Voice of the Martyrs. You can go to a number of places. And you can see in our world what Open Doors says, at least, and you can go to other places. Here are the top 50 most persecuted countries in the world. There's imminent threat, there's a lot of threat, there's top 50 countries. You can also see statistics. You can also find out more. You can get on an email list and go, how can I pray for the persecuted church? We can do that for our brothers and sisters around the world who don't live in the blessing and the freedom that you and I live in. We can praise them too. We can pray for them too. We can pray, and I did this last week at the end, but one of our former pastors, and, and, it, and it's not like some of these places, but to listen to the stories of believers in like Portland, and like Seattle, this guy, John Fox, many of you know John Fox, he ministers in Seattle, Washington, it's no cakewalk for him, inside or outside his church. We can pray for him and his family, we can pray for Neil and Sarah Sandoz who live in Nairobi, Kenya, and are more safe there, but they minister in South Sudan. These are our own. People are here. And maybe you know people. You ought to be praying for them on a regular basis. I know people that I can't even mention their name in this place because we're recording, because of the threat, the potential threat. I can't put their name in an email because of the potential threat of harm to them because they're ministering in a place like Pergamum. They're ministering in a place in our present day world like this. But personally, we can't ask this question, can't we? We can ask, in what ways am I tempted to shrink back from holding fast to the name of Jesus? Are there any spaces and places in your life well, you don't want people to know that you're a Christian student at school. I'm not saying you have to wave a sign, but I am saying, do you not want people to know that you're a Christian? Why is that? Are there places in the workplaces or with your family that you don't want them to know? 
Or maybe you're at a coffee shop and you got your Bible there, and I'm not saying this is wrong, but I'd rather use my phone. I don't want people to see my Bible. What places and spaces in our own hearts, in relative freedom, do we shrink back? Do we shrink back from holding to the name of Jesus? And there's something else, and and I'm just going to mention it here. I could mention it every week. There's a wedding of church and state, do you see it, or or religiosity, religious belief and state in Rome, do you see it? You've seen it in everyone. So so if you want to be a loyal citizen of the country, you have to worship the Caesar. You're considered disloyal if you don't worship the Caesar. You could die. So there's a wedding, a, a bringing together of religious practice and the state here. It's interesting because if you go a couple hundred years later, this is free, a couple hundred years later in history, here they're persecuting Christians. Here they're killing Christians. A couple hundred years later, what happens in Rome? It becomes like the state Christian church under Constantine, right? So they're not persecuted anymore. It becomes the state's religion. But what happens when that happens? There ain't nothing good happens, y'all. For a thousand years, they conflate like people who are working for the state are now priests, are now in leadership in religious circles. How'd that work out in church history? Not so well. Where they're forcing people to convert to Christianity. Christianity doesn't work that way. And so let's just fast forward. The world that we live in looks a bit different than that. Listen, I'm, you won't find a more patriotic person in a good way. I'm grateful for the place that I live. If you've ever been anywhere else in the world and you stayed there long enough, you'd be grateful for the freedom that God provides in this country, for the opportunities that this country provides. I'll wear, I'll wear the shirt on July 4th. I'll sing the anthem. I'm not sitting down. I'm patriotic. And for some of you young people, that doesn't mean I'm idolatrous. That doesn't mean, right? It doesn't mean that I'm a Christian nationalist and I'm conflating things. It doesn't mean that. There is a healthy way where you can appreciate the place that you live. That's healthy. But let me tell some of the older timers like me, good things can become bad things if they become ruling things. And I look at our country and I go, man, we've lost our way. And maybe you've seen that as well. And you want it back. But are you more loyal to your citizenship to the state than you are to your citizenship in heaven? That's a question I've got to ask myself. It's a question you ought to ask yourself. We don't live in that time. But we've got to be careful what we wish for sometimes. And we could, we could talk a lot about that. <laughs> we can talk a lot about that. I'm happy to talk offline with you about that. But our citizenship first, first is in heaven. Next. So the, the report card here, the report card for the church in Pergamum is, is pretty good, outwardly speaking, but there's a problem from within. There's a cancer inside of this church. It's a cancer that's malignant, Jesus is going to say. It's malignant, and what happens to malignant cancer unless you deal with it? It metastasizes and it spreads. There's a cancer of compromise in this church. Although on the outside, they beat their chest for Jesus, on the inside, they don't do that. They compromise. Look at it. 
Verse 14 through 16. Listen to this. We need to hear this. The church in America needs to hear this. Pastors need to hear this. But I have a few things against you. This is Jesus speaking. You have some, not all, you have some there in your church who hold to the teaching of Balaam. I'm going to unpack that. Who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food, sacrifice to idols, and practice sexual immorality. And also, second, you have some, not all, not the whole church, you have some who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. We've already seen that in Ephesus. Therefore, repent. And the word repent there, when the translation here, it seems kind of mild even though it says repent, and that's a serious word. But in the Greek, when it says repent, you lose the flavor of it a little bit. This is Jesus saying, repent now. Don't delay now. you got to deal with this cancer, this malignant cancer now before it metastasizes. That's the emphasis in the Greek. Now. You don't wait for a committee meeting. Don't wait for a general council that takes a year. Deal with it now. Therefore, repent. If not, see this pattern. I will come to you soon and war against them. I will come to you, faithful church, and war against them. Whew. With the sword of my mouth. Heavy stuff. What's the story of Balaam? Y'all know the story of Balaam? Numbers 22. Somebody, I, I had somebody come up to me this morning and said, hey, I'm in Numbers. I'm trying to figure this out. Wait till you get to 22 to 25. Balaam. All right, here's what's going on. In Numbers 22 to 25, you got Balak, which is mentioned in this text, and he is the king of Moab. And the nation of Israel is conquering these different pagan nations and people who worship Baal. All right, false gods, and they're making their way through, and they're about to get to the Moabites, and the Moabite king Balak goes to Balaam. Balaam, oh man, Balaam. Balaam is like the false prophet for hire. He's the mercenary. He's the witch doctor. And he'll take money from anybody to do whatever. Balak comes to him before Israel gets to Moab, and he says, hey, can you go curse their God? And Balaam's like, I can't curse that God. Here's what I can do, though. I can come up with a plan that will take the people of God and put them in a place of where they commit idolatry or I'll try for money. I'll tempt them. We can tempt them with idolatry and we can tempt them with sexual immorality. And so what's the story? As the people of Israel are coming through, Balak gets food. Food sacrificed to idols. And I'm like, y'all hungry? Here's some food sacrificed to idols. Why don't you eat it? You're hungry, right? That's idolatry to the God of heaven. That they would eat food sacrificed to, their, to Baal. And also there's some Moabite women over here. Have your fill, men. And so the people of God fall into idolatry and sexual immorality because of Balaam, because his greed, and he broke the moral standard of God. And he's like, look, I can get their God to judge them 
You don't have to worry about it. And he got paid, and he walked away, at least for a little bit. That is the teaching of Balaam. That exists inside Jesus' church. People who want to take the rest of the church away into sexual immorality and idolatry. And then it says, and it's kind of hard to know, it says, so also, verse 15, you have some who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Not totally sure if there's two bad teachings and two bad practices here or if it's just pointing to the present-day problem of the Nicolaitans that we've already seen in Ephesus. Remember what happened in Ephesus? The Nicolaitans come along. These are the licentious people. Remember, Nicholas was the guy, it looks like in church history from Acts 6, that they made a deacon, and then he formed his own Gnostic thinking and practice to say, hey, there's some hidden information, and the church has the word of God, but I've got some varsity information, and if you want to be a part of my little group that has more knowledge than the word of God, come on. And we also get to practice, God doesn't care if we're sexually immoral, so we'll just make it part of the practice. And the church at Ephesus saw them come knocking on the door, and what did the church of Ephesus say? Nope, not here. You're not going to come here and do that. They held the line. This church, they come knocking, and they're in. They're not just welcomed and said, hey, we're going to care for you and teach you. They're members, effectively. They're participating members. They're completely accepted into the membership. These people can practice what they want to and sexual immorality, invite people in to their sexual immorality, swinger night. That's the church. That's what's happening in the church. That's what he's saying. That's what Jesus is saying. What's Jesus' response? Jesus' response, let me tell you what Jesus' response isn't. Jesus' response is not, Wow, what a beautiful picture of a unifying, loving, kind church. Have different sexual orientations. That's cool. Believe different things about me and my father. They're just trying to figure it out. That's cool. They can become members, voting members in the church, and they can do their thing. Is that what Jesus says? That's what some of the church today says. That's not what Jesus says. This is serious. He says, therefore, repent. Repent now. Do it now. It's metastasizing. It's going to spread. Deal with it. And look at who he says deal with it to. This is, this is interesting. He says, repent to the faithful, I think, the faithful part of the church, you. You either repent of this and protect and guard your church. You can love them, and that's different. Or, what is he going to do? The living Bible here says, don't make me come down there. Or, this is serious. No delight in this. Or, I'm going to come down here and fight them. The Nicolaitans. The Balaamites. What happened to Balaam in the Old Testament? What did God do? What happened to 24,000 people in Israel that fell into idolatry and sexual immorality? What happened to the Moabites? What happened when Moses went up to get the oracles of God and the people said, give us another God? 
and they worshiped. And there's immorality intermixed with what happened. This may not be the Sunday school Jesus. may not be the Jesus of the culture, but this is the Jesus here. And here's what he's saying. He's saying, repent, church. And he's saying, I'm going to come and judge that double-edged sword, sword of my mouth is a sort of judgment here, even though it's meant to be a source of encouragement, a source of honey to their lips and light unto their past. But if you don't heed it, it's a judgment. Man, here's the thought. Here's the truth. Jesus doesn't, sorry, he does not tolerate churches that compromise morally and theologically from within. He won't do it. And here's, the, here's, here's what we do. We often think it's most loving just to bring people in in that way. It's most loving. What Jesus is saying, when you look at the words you and them, he's saying it's not loving for you, church, to act like everything is okay with them. It's not okay with you, and it's not okay with them. It's not the most loving thing to do. That's the message. Roman, we, we know some of these texts, but Romans 12, the call of the church Right? Don't be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of our mind, that by testing that you may discern what the will of God is, what is good and acceptable and right. James 4.4. James 4.4 says, don't be a friend to the world. It's conflict with God. If you're going to be a friend to the world, conflict with God. I'm going to define some of these things and clarify some of these things as we go. We got some students here. I got some, I got one, two, three, Mag High students. Would any of y'all ever wear Mag West uniforms to school unless you lost fantasy football or something? Or a Farkle or something? Or it's a joke? Mag West kids wouldn't wear Mag High shirts either, would they? No, never, ever. Y'all live close to each other though, though, right? We're in the same school district, but you would never fraternize with the enemy like that, right? I got, I got over here, let's see. I got, I got Willis High School over here. Would you ever wear gold and black for Conroe Tigers? You would not. You're going to wear black and purple. You're going you're gonna to rep that well. You're not, you're not going to interchange that jersey ever. You got any, what we got? Let's just say it. Some, some of you are zoned, younger kids are zoned for the Woodlands High School. Man, Woodlands. Woodlands, y'all, I looked up y'all's mascot. It's the Highlanders. I know the McCullough Middle School, all that stuff. Like, you're not Scottish, and you live in a flat place. You don't live on the Highlands. You, sorry. Y'all, need, y'all get some things done in the Woodlands. Y'all need to change that deal. It's too easy to make fun of. College Park's got y'all all day, man. I mean, they're the Cavaliers, so whatever. But seriously, Woodlands High School kids aren't going to wear College Park gear. College Park's not going to wear Woodlands High School gear. They live amongst each other. Ain't going to happen. Robbie, I'm not wearing a Cowboys uniform, all right? I'm not wearing a jersey. I'm not even going to switch it out with you after the game. Texans, baby. Aggies, look. You're not going to do that. Listen, this is important, and I'm going to clarify what I'm saying because I need to. Team Jesus does not wear interchangeable jerseys with Team World. That's not who we are. Now, as a believer, do I struggle with that? Man, I, 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 really, I really struggle with that jersey because I want something. The evil one's dangling out there that my flesh is dangling out there. 
but I don't wear it. What we want, actually, what we want is to rep that jersey so well that the world looks at that and says, that's light, I want that, I don't want what I got. The witness part of this. And just to clarify, what I'm not saying is you go into your cave as a Christian, I'm not saying that at all, and wear your jersey and only hang out with one another, you're called to be a witness. That's why God has left you here, to be on mission for people like you were before you knew Christ. You once were, book of Titus. You ain't no better. Jesus has just changed your heart. And so we're here to be a witness of Jesus. That people aren't accepted necessarily because of who they are, but they're accepted because of Jesus, that he accepts them on the basis of faith and repentance. Right? So, so just to be crystal, crystal clear on what I'm saying We don't live isolated lives. We want to be a witness to the world around us. But in the church, we have to guard the truth. We have to guard practice. Let me just summarize what I think is happening in between the lines in this church. I think what's happening is you have a faithful remnant in this church, and they're holding fast, and then they have decided that it's just okay to bring the false teaching and the sexual immorality in and accept them as they are, Become members, and here's the fail. The fail is leadership. I don't know. It looks like Antipas may have been one of the leaders of the church or even the pastor of the church. I don't know what their leadership was like, but the New Testament tells us that elders and pastors are shepherds. And what does a shepherd do? A shepherd, a shepherd cares for the sheep, but a shepherd also and leads his sheep to greener pastures, So there's leadership and there's internal care, but there's also protection. A shepherd protects his flock from what? The wolves outside. And in the New Testament, it's really clear over and over and over. You can't miss it. That the job of an elder and a pastor is, and the wolves are false teachers. The wolves are people who bring in false teaching and false practice and sexual immorality, those things. And so part of my job as a pastor is to protect you, the sheep, and the elder team is to protect our church doctrinally. So there's a fail somewhere here in this church. You don't read about it. In the leadership of the church, and that doesn't have to come with just a powerful rod. It also comes with kid gloves, but there's certainly a protection of the church theologically and in practice. Today, after church, if you've been here for a little bit and you just want to learn about church membership, here's what we're going to do. And this is important. This is an important step for anybody who wants to be a member, but it's also an important step for the church, any church. We're going to tell you about who we are. We're going to tell you about our theology. We're going to tell you about our practice. We're going to tell you about our philosophy of ministry, how we do ministry. We're going to tell you our mission and vision. We're also going to ask you, if you want to become a member, we're going to ask you about your testimony a little bit. That's not to be the FBI necessarily with you, but we want to know your faith. I care way more about you knowing Jesus than you being on membership role. I, I want to know about your convert. I want to know about the gospel in your life. I want to know how you came to faith. We want to know that to encourage you. We also want to know if you know Jesus, and, and we're also going to walk through a a process a little bit. We're going we're gonna to show you a document we have that said, here's how our church partners together to be Christ followers, to live out our faith. 
Here's what we think about coming together in unity and not slander. Here's what we think about some spiritual disciplines. Here's what we think about community. Won't you be involved? And we're also going to show you our, our doctrinal statement or our teaching statement just to say, here's what we think is orthodox faith. That's what we buy into, you buy into. We're going to show you our teaching statement, which is even broader, kind of secondary things, and go, here's what you're going to hear from the pulpit. Here's what you're gonna hear, your kids are going to hear from the pulpit to your kids' class. That's a good step for anybody coming to a church to know where they stand. Rather than just saying, hey, everybody come on in. It's no big deal what you think or believe. As elders, we don't protect the church that way. We also don't help you. And so that's why we call the class Membership Matters. Not because you get a vote or I have chapter verse on imperative things about membership. I mean, we're not going to prick your hand and make you commit your life, okay? It's not what the membership is. It's about partnership together. It's a way for you to know, but it's also a way for us to protect the membership of the church. And that's a good thing. Man, there's, there's folks in here, I want to say this. There are people in this room, and it so encourages me how much you care about people who don't know Jesus how much you love people who don't know Jesus. You know the grace of God yourself. You've experienced it yourself. And you want people to experience his love and his mercy and his kindness. And you're not affected one bit about what sin it is or what lifestyle it is. And that's a beautiful thing. Other people in the church need more of that in this church, right? I'm not pointing at people. But we need more of that. But the danger is, especially if, if my bent personality-wise is people-pleasing, if I have both of those things that are present, one of the things that can happen is like, I'm going to move the line. I'm going to move Jesus' line. Because I think that's going to help them believe. And this text is saying it's not. It's not the full message. It's not the clear message of the gospel. The gospel includes Jesus loves you. But he saves you. He saves you from something, though. He saves you from your sin. He saves you from your sins. So there is a turning, and it's gifts of faith and repentance, but there is a turning from my way of living to Jesus' way, that he's Lord. He wants it all. And then there's some of us in here that are saying, preach it, pastor, law, truth, kind of bent. This is certainly a warning to the church to guard the truth, to guard doctrine, to guard practice. But this is not a proof text for you to beat people up. It's not. It's ought to give you more compassion for the lost, people who need Jesus and the brokenness of where they're at, even if they yell at you on social media. Let me give you four thoughts about compromise. Four characteristics of compromise. First of all, compromise never occurs quickly. Ships, think about ships. Rarely does a ship get off course in the ocean because some dude on the ship just took the wheel and turned it all the way. It gets off course slowly but surely because the current and the winds. That's the way compromise works. Hebrews 2, 1 says, play close attention, church. Pay close attention to what we have heard so we don't drift away from the living God. Compromise never happens 
quickly. Second, about compromise, it always lowers the original standard, God's standard. It lowers that standard. That's why inerrancy and sufficiency of Scripture is so important. We don't bend the standard to make it more palatable for the culture. We believe God. We believe who he is and how he's revealed himself is best for a culture that says, I don't want it. It lowers that standards. Hebrews 10, 23 says, let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. New Testament says, contend for the faith. The one that I made up or the one that's passed down? The one that's passed down. We're not changing the message. Third, compromise is seldom, seldom offensive. That's why it's easy to drift. It's seldom offensive, at least to the world around us. It's applauded. That's why it's easy to drift, a little resistance from a watching world. Jesus sums us up and says, man, if, if you were of the world, the world would absolutely love you. But you're not of the world. So understand it, it's probably going to hate you at some point. Again, not go in your closet. It's not what we're talking about. Last, a little small compromise often leads to bigger compromises. That's just the story of the church. You can't ignore a thousand years of this where people make and churches make little bitty moral compromises that lead to theological compromises. See also the church. See also institutions that started as Christian institutions. See also denominations. It's just what happens, the pressure. It's how it moves. See, also David went from little things to big things. We've talked a lot about the church here. But let's talk personally just for one second. What small little compromises are you considering to make? What are they? What small compromises are you already making? Maybe people don't know about it. What Small compromises have become big compromises in your life. Fellas, whether it's pornography that leads to adultery, ladies, if it's gossip that leads to slander, that leads to broken relationship, whether it's white lies that leads to big lies. Compromise happens slowly, but it gets bigger. So here's this kind of rough spot. Are there any remedy here? Is there any hope for this church? I'm going to knock my pulpit over. Is there any hope for this church? Does Jesus hold out any hope for them? I hope there's hope. Don't you? As a compromiser, I hope there is. Best news you got. If I stop the sermon right here, I've just given you a real fundamental don't be like the world sermon, haven't I? But there's something beautiful right here in verse 17. you got to see it. you got to see some gospel truth in this sermon. The root of the gospel in this. You also see some root of compromise and where it really comes from. Look at verse 17. We lost time. Time, where does it go? Who has an ear, let him hear. The Spirit says to the churches, to the one who conquers, that's the believer, I will give some of the hidden manna. And I will give him a white stone with a new name, three things written on the stone that no one knows except the one who conquers those three things, hidden manna. Where have you seen manna in the Bible before? Wilderness. 
where people have compromised and they've gone their own way and God is saying to them, you need to be dependent on me for your sustenance, for your satisfaction, for your nourishment. I'm going to give you manna from heaven every day. And then you come to the New Testament. What does Jesus say about himself? I am the bread of life. Take my breath. You will never hunger again. I give you living water. You will never thirst again. You will find nourishment from me. And then you see this white stone. White stone, number of things it could be, but two thoughts. One thought is it's the person who's facing a judge who's been accused of a crime and they're acquitted. And when they're set free, the judge gives them a white stone because they're set free and writes their name on it because they are free. They were They've committed a crime or they haven't committed, they're acquitted. One other place in athletic games of that day, which we saw last week in the crown of life. At the end of the athletic games, if you win and you endure and you conquer, you get a white stone with a name on it. You know what that white stone with a name on it grants you? It grants you acceptance into the after party after the games. There's acceptance. There's assurance that you're getting in. See also eternal life. If you know Jesus, you've stood the trial, and he's acquitted you. Even though you're guilty, you, had, you deserve the black stone, and he's given you a white stone, and he writes a new name on it, and you have freedom. And you have entrance into eternal life where you get to go to the marriage supper of the Lamb and be nourished and forever have assurance and acceptance by the one that really matters to and from. But until then, as a believer in Jesus, guess what you have? You have nourishment. You have manna that God gives you every day. Your third thought today is this, only Jesus, church, only Jesus can supply you with the nourishment and the acceptance and the assurance that you need. Why do I say this comes back to compromise? Because what do we do when we compromise? What's the root of compromise? The root of compromise is I need something else. I need more. God can't provide it. He wants to tie me down, students. He can't provide me what I need. I need more than God will provide. See also the church at Pergamum. No, sexual immorality will help me. That will satisfy. And Jesus is saying, no, it won't. It will never give you what you need. What you really need is me. I'm your nourishment. That extra knowledge that you want this Gnostic knowledge from the Nicolaitans that you want, that you think is going to satisfy, is more than just the Bible because I need more than that? No, it's not. It's not going to satisfy. See also your original parents, not your mom and dad. See also Adam and Eve. What happened? Compromise. Why did they compromise? They were given everything. 
They were given the tree of life. They were given nourishment. They were given God himself, walked in the cool of the day. And the serpent, the evil one of old, Satan of old, what does he do? Throws a little doubt in there. Did God really say? Is God really good? He's holding out on you. You need more. You need to go take of the fruit of that tree, and you will get more than God had given them. And you and me, everything we need. You ever heard this? Sin will make, take you farther than you want to go. It will cost you more than you want to pay, and it will keep you there longer than you want to stay. Man, we are compromisers to some degree. We take the evil one's bait just like Adam and Eve did. And yet, Jesus, the bread of life, has died on a cross for you and me and rose from the dead. And he provides you the nourishment that you need for salvation and for sanctification. He provides you the acceptance that you need that you don't need to go looking for from this fallen world. And the assurance that you need. So this church externally had everything right. They looked good, but they had an internal cancer that was threatening to metastasize, that was malignant. And Jesus lovingly says, repent, turn. I am your nourishment. I will supply all that you need. Man, is there a place in life right now today that you are looking for nourishment in a different place than Jesus. Perhaps theologically, perhaps sexually. Where are you looking for your supply? Jesus is saying, I'm all you need. You ever heard the saying, what one generation tolerates, the next generation will accept and what that generation accepts, the next generation will celebrate. Pretty prophetic about the world you and I live in. What is this world celebrating? It's celebrating the same things the first century church was celebrating, isn't it? That's where it's gotten. The cycle has repeated. Nothing new under the sun. The more things change, the more things stay the same. Do you know? I didn't even know this until yesterday because I proofed I proof some of the quotes or things that I say just to make sure it's accurate. And I had no idea, and I was blown away when I saw who this, this quote was just in the back of my head. I'm like, this is perfect. You know who said that or a version of that? John Wesley. Do you know who John Wesley is? John Wesley was a faithful believer in Jesus and heaven today started the Methodist church. What one generation tolerates, the next will accept. And then the next generation will celebrate. I don't think John Wesley from heaven can, can weep a tear or roll over in his grave, as we say. But I think he would. There's a warning here for all of us, not just the Methodist church and what's happened there. For us as well. Here's what I think this boils down to. We need to take Jesus at 
his word. We need to take him at his word, that he's enough. What does that look like today? I think it looks like the same thing that it looked like then in many ways. Hold fast, like this church, hold fast to his name. But second, where they got it wrong, guard. Guard our life and doctrine. Guard as a church the good deposit, as Paul would say. Guard our theology. Guard our morality and ethics inside of our church. Not to whip the world, that's not the point, to love the world and care for the world and show the world what biblical Christianity actually looks like. So we guard doctrine and practice. Church leaders, that's us. But I'd also say this, because the emphasis of this text is guarding, I'd also say this. Just as vehemently and just as rabidly, we have to be a church that is committed to our witness to a broken world. Our witness to a world that is broken sexually, theologically. A world that needs to be set free by the gospel of Jesus from what they think is freedom that is actually slavery. Who does God want to deliver that message? You and me. They need the truth to set them free. They need repentance that unbinds them from their shackles. They need the true love and grace of Jesus that you've experienced as well. That God has saved you from as well. The world needs that. And last, we need to remember, believer, that it's Jesus who supplies it's Jesus that supplies all that you need. You don't need to go looking anywhere else. You don't need to find acceptance anywhere else. He provides it. Take Jesus at his word. Let me pray.